This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. If you've known someone who's tried to quit smoking, or have tried yourself, then you know that this is no easy task. There's this great scene in Jim Jarmusch's 2003 movie, Coffee and Cigarettes, that speaks to this. Tom Waits and Iggy Pop are sitting across from one another in a bar, and after noting that they both have quit smoking, Tom reaches for a cigarette and says, The beauty of quitting is, now that I've quit, I can have one, because I've quit. So, actually, for most of us, it's not the quitting part that's difficult. It's resisting the urge to use the drug in the future. And this is how we define addiction. It's a strong urge to seek out and use a drug, even when using that drug is harmful. So what is it about drugs that make them so hard to resist? Let's cover some of the basics. Our brains have evolved a network of regions that respond positively when we satisfy certain biological drives, like eating or having sex. In turn, this creates the sensation of pleasure, which is thought to serve as a teaching signal to help us repeat the actions that elicited that reward. The entire process is sometimes called the reward circuit. It's extremely important to appreciate that this is not a singular process. It can actually be broken down into three major components. There is the wanting part, which is the desire or motivation to seek the reward. Then there's the liking part, which is actual pleasurable experience. And then there's the learning part, the associations that are made to help obtain more rewards in the future. These three components have been found to involve at least partially unique brain regions and signaling molecules. For example, the nucleus accumbens shell and ventral pallidum are associated with the liking sensation. Stimulation to these areas will increase how much the animal will experience the pleasure related to, say, something delicious. Then there are areas like the ventral tegmental area, which is associated with the wanting sensation. This area is made of neurons that contain dopamine, which is an important molecule that helps drive motivation to seek a reward. So, what are addictive drugs doing to your brain? Well, they each have unique targets and effects. But one thing in common is that they almost all overstimulate release of dopamine in this reward circuit. This then results in a euphoric high, and the brain learns to associate the drug with a strong reward. However, with continued use, the brain begins to adapt to the excessive dopamine. Over time, a drug user finds that they need to increase their intake to achieve a similar high. And finally, the user finds that the drug no longer feels good, but it is the only thing that can prevent them from feeling terrible. As we can see, drugs manipulate the brain and compel the user to continue taking the drug. Exactly how they do so is much more complicated and has been the focus of extensive neuroscience research. So our guest today is Dr. John Danny, a neuroscientist formerly from Baylor College of Medicine and is currently the chair of neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania. He has been investigating the neural and chemical changes that occur during learning and has been using drugs of abuse as a way to induce these changes. His research currently utilizes exciting recording techniques that allow them to observe how drugs like nicotine change the brain in real time. Let's go to the interview. You, you know, you're an expert on addiction and learning processes. Uh, can you just sort of tell us a little bit uh, about what it is about drugs that make them so addictive? Why do particular drugs of abuse 
you know, hijack a system and make us uh, make addiction a, you know, a very uh, strong process. You know, I think you alluded to it when you said they hijack a process. I think the brain is a learning machine. The synaptic plasticity is going on all the time. We're always adjusting our behaviors to a changing environment. Those, those things are what the brain is evolving to do, to have us conduct successful behaviors. And addictive drugs kind of hijack those evolved systems that shape our behaviors. When unexpected things occur in the environment, dopamine signals may be sent so that you have to update your salient map of the environment. Well, that's a learning process, and if the addictive drugs can go in and activate this process so that you're learning associations with the addictive drug, those associations then become drives to conduct a behavior. Unfortunately, in the case of addictive drugs, the, the behaviors they're driving are the addictive behaviors themselves. So I think, um, you know, the, the word of hijacking evolutionarily developed systems is not inappropriate. It's a good way to think about it. I guess what you're saying, right, is they come in and just take control of that system and say, do they just, do they give value then to the drug itself? Well, if, if the normal way that you're going to interact with your environment, that is, you're going to take in cues from your environment, and then you should know, once you've established a map of the salience and importance in your environment, you should start conducting successful behaviors. If you've made associations with addictive drugs, that is, if, if the associations you have with the addictive drugs are then going to cue internal states that produce a behavior, the question is, well, what, what is an internal state? What is driving that? Well, the easy one is, if you get hungry, you have a real feeling. There's a real autonomic feeling that's all over you that you want to go get food. You I think know. I have that all the time, it seems like. <laughs> I need and you, you know, you know how to, you know how to, you know what behavior to conduct. What's the successful behavior? I go get food, and that internal state is gone. Well, it may be subtler than that, although not always, because cravings certainly are all over you to, to drive you to use a drug. But there are are cues that will drive drug use. I mean, the very interesting ones. There are there are some interesting examples. So. It turns out cigarette smoking is very difficult to quit, and there are many, maybe even socioeconomic reasons why that's the case. It's relatively inexpensive. There's very easy access. You don't have to break the law to get it. Those are all reasons. But let me give you some other reasons. If my point of view, and, and I think a relatively accepted one now, is that environmental cues are going to drive the addic addictive behaviors, just as it will drive successful behaviors in your life, you know, I've given talks very often to lay audiences, and often people will come up after I've given the talk and say, you know, some of the things you're saying about, you know, why I smoke and the rewarding aspects. And I, you know, when the alarm goes off in the morning, I reach over and get a cigarette, and it's my favorite time of the day. I just relax in bed and smoke my cigarette. And someone else will say, you know, for me, I go downstairs, I have breakfast, and I'm having a cup of coffee after eating. I relax and have a cigarette, and it's my, one of my favorite times of the day. And, and someone else will be nearby and say, no, 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 it's not like that at all for me. I'm not at all like that. As a matter of fact, I don't smoke until I'm driving home in my car. And I, it's my favorite time of the day. It's really interesting how they'll kind of sum it up. I have my first cigarette of the day, which, of course, is is 
is the one that will kind of most potently activate these reward-based mechanisms, these dopamine signaling, these things that will shape your behavior. But what's really interesting about all three of those stories, one of them, they woke up in bed and had their cigarette. One of them, they went downstairs, had breakfast, and had their cigarette. The other person was driving home and had their cigarette. These are all things that are embedded in your day. There's no way you're going to get those behaviors out of your life. You know, I might be able to avoid going to a crack house, but how am I going to avoid driving home? Or how am I going to avoid waking up in my bed? So the cue to smoke the cigarette, this person has to face every day, every day. And you know, day after day, they'll wake up and they won't smoke. Day after day after day. But some things, including things like stress, including, you know, unexpected events in your life, one day you'll slip up and say, well, I'll just have one cigarette today when I wake up, just, just today with all this stress. And okay, it might be okay, but on other occasions, they just can't resist falling back into cigarette smoking. And probably what's most insidious about it is the events that cue cigarette use are deeply embedded in the day. That is, running into friends at 4 o'clock when you usually go out to a parking lot and have a cigarette. You run into these same friends, or you go through that same parking lot every day on the way home. So they're deeply embedded in your day, and these are the cues that are going to induce the behaviors. I thought that was interesting too. You said also that it was, you know, the first one of the day was the, the favorite part of the day. That is, is there a time component to? Well, one of the things that's interesting is, um, we, we did some work. It was some of our earliest work, which showed that the first cigarette of the day may be the most rewarding, which was results you already had from behavior. Behaviorally, people report their first cigarette or so of the day is their most rewarding, is the one that they enjoy the most. After that, they'll report smoking for different reasons. To relax, to get back energy, to calm down, It'll, or, or to get, you know, as a break in the day. Um, they'll, they'll report different reasons for smoking, but it's common that the first cigarette of the day is the one that is the most enjoyable. Part of what we showed happens for, for, for nicotine is, it is a very potently desensitizing compound. It desensitizes its own receptors. So probably overnight, when they haven't smoked for maybe 8 to 12 hours, the first cigarette of the day most potently activates nicotinic receptors before the desensitization begins and can most potently drive these circuits that we're describing uh, that shape behavior. Later on in the day, um, studies have been done. It shows that as the day progresses, the background level of nicotine grows with more cigarette smoke throughout the day. So the half-life of nicotine in a human is approaching the time period of hours. So even if they wait a couple hours between cigarettes, they haven't completely dissipated the nicotine in the system. It's adding up and the desensitization of the receptors is adding up during the course of the day. Nicotine seems to be a very addictive drug for many reasons, like you said, especially cues being very daily and, and apparent. Do other drugs of abuse, cocaine, alcohol, other things that are addictive, do they all work on this? Do you think it all works on a very similar mechanism or does each one of them have a particular mechanism that makes it more or less addictive? Well, they have their own unique mechanisms. When you, when you look in details down to the synaptic, cellular, and molecular level, they have unique mechanisms. As you know yourself, cocaine 
one of the things it does is it blocks catecholamine transporters, whereas nicotine doesn't have an effect on uh, direct effect on um, dopamine or energic transporters. But one of the systems that they converge on is on dopamine signaling and catecholamine signaling. So they, they, they don't all work in the same way, and they don't all converge exactly onto these same systems, but it's common, particularly for psychostimulants like amphetamines, cocaine, nicotine, to converge onto the dopaminergic catecholamine signaling systems. So they may do many other things, and they do, we, we know that, but among the things they, those psychostimulants do is converge through different mechanisms onto the signaling of these dopaminergic and other catecholamine signaling systems, but particularly the dopamine systems. Okay, and is there any, uh, does nicotine prime addictive actions of alcohol or things like that? Well, we, we've been looking into exactly that lately. I mean, we've been, um, so we just published a paper in Neuron, I think several months ago, looking at pre-exposure to nicotine having consequences on alcohol self-administration in rodents. It's well known through epidemiology that there is a correlation. Smokers tend to be heavier drinkers. Drinkers tend to be heavier smokers. That is, if you do one, you're, you're more likely to do the other and to do more of it. I think there was a, an epidemiology study from the country Norway in which you know, it's, a, it's a relatively slow population country with a, a reasonable amount of wealth, so their epidemiology is very good. And one of the predictors they found for if you're going to have a drunk driving um, ticket or, or, or experience as a, an adult, let's say a 30, 40-year-old, was whether or not you smoked as a teenager. The question is, is it causal, or are we just looking at a collection of people that are more like, this collection of people are more likely to smoke and more likely to have a drunk driving experience? Well, part of what we've shown in, in a recent paper, that recent paper in Neuron is that a pre-exposure to nicotine will lead rodents to tend to self-administer more alcohol, and very you know, just one exposure to nicotine will have consequences for days on on an animal's alcohol drinking. They're more likely to drink more, and they're more likely to self-administer more. So clearly there there are effects where nicotine will cause enhanced use of some addictive drugs, but we found this this effect that we were studying, at least, in that particular paper in which it was a single exposure to nicotine, and then looking at the next couple of days how they would self-administer alcohol. That isn't true for all drugs. We found that other drugs such as benzodiazepine will show the, some of these effects, but cocaine, for instance, didn't show these effects. It's not to say, however, that nicotine exposures under some circumstances won't potentiate cocaine use and vice versa. I think it it's very likely because, as I said, they converge on a certain mechanisms. They certainly converge on the idea of associated memories to the drug use and uh, the catecholamine signaling, particularly dopamine signaling associated with drug use. There's obvious convergence. And um, I'd expect that the, the link between drugs and the comorbidity certainly has an underlying reason. And it's going to likely be mechanistically different for different drugs. We talked about things like even a single dose of, of nicotine being, you know, predisposing 
potential uh, addictive behaviors for alcohol or things like that. Uh, could you talk about other things that can predispose before even taking a nicotine, uh, uh, smoking a cigarette? What are, do we know anything about what would predispose an individual to even engage in these behaviors? And if doing so would make them more likely to be addicted? Certainly there are going to be genetic predispositions. One of them for addiction, of course, is it's, it's, there's a correlation with thrill seekers. And arguably, again, this, this among the things that may be going on may be, um, low dopamine levels. That is, it's argued, um, and there's some evidence that, uh, low dopamine levels will maybe tend to favor thrill seeking, where you would get a, a dopamine surge associated with the thrill seeking. What we found in these areas where we pre-treat with nicotine and then look at alcohol self-administration, we actually found that the pre-treatment with nicotine depresses the dopamine signal associated with alcohol, which you might think that might be counter to what you'd anticipate. You'd anticipate the dopamine signals helping to drive the addiction. Wouldn't you anticipate that the nicotine will then cause the alcohol to have a bigger dopamine signal? Well, what we found, and what we think this is a simple-minded way to look at it, but one of the arguments with alcohol is if somebody says, I can drink you under the table, and they can, <laughs> they're more susceptible to drinking more alcohol. So it's, it's not uncommon to find, even in animal experiments, an animal that can drink a lot before it loses its writing ability. That is, if you put it on its back, it can't straighten out. That is, it has a higher ability to drink before it sees effects they're more susceptible to drinking more alcohol. Just as the person who says, I can drink you under the table, they're more susceptible to drinking more alcohol. Mm. So if you drink a little bit and you, and you kind of can't drink anymore, you're stumbling around, well, you know, you reach a point where you really can't drink anymore. It may be mappable onto even dopamine signals. That is, if I take an addictive drug and my dopamine signals tend to be small, it's possible that I'll drink more in an attempt to achieve this greater dopamine signaling. And there's some evidence for that, and our work kind of suggests that could be the case as well. That is, when the animal will self-administer more alcohol after this nicotine exposure correlates with the period of time when the alcohol-induced dopamine signals are suppressed. So oddly enough, after a single nicotine exposure, the rat will self-administer alcohol more for a few days, and that's actually the same period of time when the alcohol-induced dopamine signals are suppressed. Do you think it's to achieve the dopamine they wouldn't have gotten, or that they're not getting, that they would have in the absence of nicotine? So they're expecting, there's an expectation possibly of that, feel, that dopamine surge from the alcohol, and now the nicotine suppressed it. They're like, where did that go? Why am I not... That's possible, and, and that's a tempting interpretation, possibly the right one. But there is some rare results from Van de Kooy's lab in Canada and others that possibly the actual drive itself, the actual drive may not be the dopamine signal but something else. And maybe that's what we're seeing here is a separation of the dopamine signal and the drive to use the addictive drug. So it's, it's tempting to say they're working it working to get their dopamine signal back, and that's what's motivating them to use more. Others might argue that, well, they're being motivated to work more, but the dopamine signal itself isn't all that important, and that's why you're not seeing this work to get the dopamine signal. So you can, you can use both interpretations yet. 
but it's interesting that the two are correlated in time. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean they're causal, but they're correlated in time. So we've talked that addiction really is, or drugs of abuse come in and really just change the way uh, the the brain uh, makes connections. Uh, and you gave a talk, a wonderful talk today that showed a really interesting connection between the area in which dopamine is released and this other area of the brain, the hippocampus, that does a lot of kind of like contextual information processing and a lot of other memory-based uh, information processing. Could you talk about the, some of the work you've done in the, the connection and how nicotine changes that the dopamine response into the hippocampus so there's a little bit of controversy about how potent the actual dopaminergic innervation in the hippocampus is so let's go so far as to say let's accept that there's certainly a catecholamine innervation into the hippocampus and then let's take the point of view that we have that at least some of that is dopaminergic. Some of the controversy is that some of that dopaminergic innervation into the hippocampus may actually be coming from the locus ceruleus rather than the VTA. Even if it were coming from the locus ceruleus, we think there is a dopamine signal into the hippocampus. Now, now that we've gotten that far, now let me say that Nicotine helps to boost, and addictive drugs help to boost that dopamine signal into the hippocampus. Clearly, the hippocampus is a memory center, very important for contextual or the, the, the association between the drug experience and the context under which it's being used. And we think part of what's going on is that the dopamine signal lowers the threshold for memory events, makes memory events happen more easily, and associated a mechanism for memory is synaptic change. The simplest one that we can discuss would be long-term synaptic potentiation. So part of what dopamine is doing is allowing information that's coming in to more easily reach the threshold to produce a memory event. So for instance, you might think of it as information's coming in on this pathway, but you know, it's not all that important, there's no dopamine signal, and I really don't remember it very well, such as, you know, one of the examples I use there is the clothes that all the people are wearing around you. You probably couldn't remember very well what the people are wearing. But if the information coming in is associated with a nice dopamine signal burst, that burst could have resulted from, you know, using the argument of prediction error, the idea that the environment presented an unexpected event, such as an unexpected rewarding event, extra dopamines being sent, it would lower the threshold. So this information now can produce synaptic plasticity and arguably memory associated with that synaptic plasticity. So whatever that dopamine signal arose from, you might argue among the things that would drive it would be unexpected reward. So that now that information, maybe it is the clothes the person's wearing, drove a memory event. So let's say, you know, one of the things that's causing evolution is, is, uh, is sexual reproduction, right? That in the end, that's what evolution's all about, getting your genes into the next generation. If coincidentally, that's person, uh, who, who's of, for instance, sexual interest to you, that might be one of the reasons why you might both send a dopamine signal and remember the clothes he or she is wearing. Um, that's a not the best example on earth, but there it is. <laughs> now, I think that just idea is, is amazing and kind of gets at the real heart of, you know, how can a drug be addictive if it's, uh, if it really is hijacking, again, to go back to that, that term that seems to 
you know, equate it very well. It's memory systems are necessary for, for so many processes, just all of survival, at least uh, we need to form memories uh, to adapt. And if this like a drug like nicotine, for instance, can just get us to remember the environmental cues better and then drive that behavior, it seems to be a really interesting, uh, you know, mechanism for that. So is addiction a disease, do you think, or is this, yeah, I guess I just want to hear your thoughts on how you frame a, like an addicted person, like how we should maybe think about treating or, tre- yeah, maybe thinking about addiction socially. I think you struck on it socially. Because this is a social issue, I would prefer to refer to it in that way. It's better to think of it in that way rather than certainly not just weak will. I mean, these are, these are probably the most fundamental aspects of how the brain works and how it creates successful humans. And addictive drugs are tapping into these fundamental systems. You can follow them all the way through the evolutionary tree down to insects. They have oxytocin in, in insects, which is very similar to the dopamine signaling that we have. Um, so these are very important fundamental systems that are all the way through the phylogenetic tree. Whether you want to use the word disease or not, I don't know, but I think it's an appropriate one. It's a more appropriate way to think about addiction. And, and, and it's, a, it's an appropriate way to, to think about, a, in the right way, about mental health and mental disease and mental illness. You know, there's still a, a stigmatism associated with mental health problems and with alcohol, addiction problems. There's, there's still a social issue that stigmatizes people more than someone who has cancer. And there was a time when cancer itself had this associated with it. There, there are, go back into the old literature, there was a stigma. That's kind of gone away. We accept it's a disease. And I think it's appropriate to get the proper treatment from society, get insurance companies to treat mental illness, which mental health, addiction is one of the aspects of mental health. And they need to be treated adequately by by society in developing laws and, and insurance benefits for those who need help. So it's an appropriate phrase to use as opposed to, you know, weak-willed or whatever other um, inappropriate terminology you might want to use. I'm glad that, like, you know, neuroscience has been able to sort of elucidate that. Uh, how did you get into interested in studying addiction? Well, addiction. You know, the first thing, if you think about the, the, the visual field, vision, the major breakthroughs came there because they could really, and, and one of the big advantages they have in studying maybe the most difficult system in, for humans is the visual system. It's really complicated in humans. But the huge advantage they have is the input. They can absolutely control every aspect of a visual input. Bars, dots, the luminance, the everything, the, the frequency, everything can be very precisely controlled. It's a huge advantage they have. When I was originally gripped, and I, I began to understand things about about nicotine coming from a kind of more biophysical background and understanding things about nicotine. And I thought, and I became interested in, in, in learning, memory, decision-making, and I thought addictive drugs are a controlled input. Maybe we can use addictive drugs to pull apart these systems with, with much greater control, just as vision had very strong control over light. Well, there's no way we have that kind of control, the light that the visual um, 
vision field has over light. But addictive drugs allow you to pull apart these systems. And I think my talk a little bit has gotten there now, where we're pulling apart um, synaptic plasticity mechanisms, um, molecular mechanisms, by controlling the input when you give it and how you're controlling uh, other aspects. It took 10 years of studying addictive drugs where we, until I got to the point they understood enough to be able to use them in that way where we could pull apart memory systems and say, here's how the um, catecholamines are combining with excitation of certain pathways to induce uh, plasticity that's shaping behavior. But that's what initially inspired me, geez, maybe 10, almost closing in on 15 years ago before I went away to get the techniques to be able to do this. And you started with looking at just, so your first interest in with science was to, uh, was channels and sort of, uh, mm -hmm. is that what initially kind of got you into yeah, I was a, studying I was science? Initially, well, I wouldn't say that, that certainly didn't get me into science, but that was mm -hmm. my thesis work okay. as, a, as a student was studying uh, ion channels and aspects of permeation, including theoretical studies that I was doing in the early um, years of my career. I did theoretical work as well as electrophysiology and kind of came from that biophysics background. Okay, so you saw then uh, drugs of abuse or nic things like nicotine to be uh, an interesting way to manipulate the system and get it to do what you want it to do, like form a strong maybe learning or strong mm -hmm. association. Uh, did neuroscience, was that, did neuroscience particularly interest you at the time or did you just, did you just see that as a tool to use and then then realizing or then, you know, accepting that, okay, the brain is utilizing these to form learning uh, associations. Well, I, I, had I had, early on, was very interested in neuroscience. Uh, I mean, even my thesis work, even though it was quite biophysical and I was studying ion channels and, and um, theoretical aspects, including probably half my thesis is theoretical, theoretical aspects. I was already interested in neuroscience. It was a very natural, slow movement into more and more neuroscience until the talk I gave today was very embedded in aspects of neuroscience. But that was kind of gradual. It was more when we went and got new techniques, when I started thinking about some of the things I wanted to talk about as I was doing synaptic work on plasticity and the roles that cholinergic mechanisms were playing in the brain, we were doing synaptic and cellular work in tissue culture and slice, but we were making conclusions that had to do with behavior. But we weren't doing any in vivo recordings. We weren't working with live animals. So I went away and got some very powerful techniques working in Matt Wilson's lab at MIT to do in vivo recordings with tetrodes and with uh, single electrodes and doing in vivo microdialysis. So we really wanted to open up the black box but have a behaving animal so that we could speak to higher level issues. And at that same time, I was thinking we could use addictive drugs as a controlled input rather than kind of more ill-defined behavioral tasks to manipulate these systems. And that kind of all grew um, kind of naturally out of, out of my own interests. Uh, could you talk about the, your approach to the scientific process? Do you look at techniques? Do you look at the system, the phenomena first? Do you have any sort of method? Not in that way. I, w I wouldn't say in that way. W when we went away, when I went away to get techniques, and it really was a big transition from doing a lot of theoretical work and um, biophysical studies on tissue cultured cells and, and, and slice, very in vitro, 
minimal systems where you had a great deal of control. When I started having ideas at this other level, this idea of, of shaping behaviors and decision-making, I went away to get the techniques to be able to do it. So I started having ideas and I started thinking about things that I couldn't, wasn't capable of doing. So I think it was kind of the other way around. The ideas and the things that were interesting me and that I was talking about. When I talked, I talked about behavioral things, but I wasn't actually addressing them with my slice preparations. And in about 1999, 2000, went away, uh, roughly about that time, went away to learn these new techniques so that we could do those experiments. So it was a little bit the other way around. I was driven by what I wanted to do to go get the, the right techniques. And, and they ended up being very helpful. I mean, those couldn't, we couldn't have done the sort of work that we described today about addictive drugs shaping behaviors and inducing memory uh, without those techniques. They're, they're very powerful and amazing kind of data that you, you presented. Would you mind talking a little bit, uh, maybe just briefly, about those techniques, uh, like a particular one that you, you that you use or um, and go a little bit into detail? You know, in vivo recording, we described stimulating the anorhinal cortex area, the medial perforant path, and recording in the dentate gyrus. Um, we also stimulate uh, Schaefer collateral and record from the CA1 region in freely moving animals. And this is very much like a slice experiment. Like if you were cut a brain slice, you could do very comparable what are called field recordings in a slice. And we are now doing these um, in freely moving animals. And this has a long history. It goes back um, decades that that type of experiment was done, although it's not as commonly done anymore. As a matter of fact, it's extremely rare. And we were motivated to do it because we thought, you know, tetrode recordings, which we also do, are very difficult, very demanding. You get, you know, gigabytes of data and, and you analyze it. And I presented that work to you. But there's certain things, they're, they're very time consuming. It takes a long time. And even these in vivo recordings, these slice experiments that are done in a freely moving animal, same type of approaches can answer the question more easily and nearly as definitively if you set the experiment up properly. The advantage it also has, so the way we do that experiment is we put a stimulating electrode into a fiber track and we record at its target area what it's doing to the target. And we measure what we call a field. Well, it's the same thing you would do in a, in a slice. But this is a freely moving animal during a behavior when memory events and when the brain can change as a consequence of the animal performing a task. So we can probe how that's changing as the animal performs a task. Um, it's a very exciting experiment. For someone who's coming more from a, from a slice background, if you go back a couple decades, we were doing slice experiments. To now do that in a freely moving animal and to see real differences. There's things we can get in the freely moving animal that we can't get in the slice. One of them was a drug-induced synaptic plasticity in the freely moving animal that we couldn't see in the slice. Others have done other addictive drugs and found that in a slice you can induce synaptic plasticity and the types of synaptic change that would underlie memory. But in, the, uh, in other cases, you can't induce it. So there are differences in, the, in, in between the slice and in a freely moving animal, just as you would anticipate. 
right? You have an intact brain, a functioning brain during behavioral tasks. It's just very exciting and it opens up a whole new avenue of experiments that elevates your slice work. So now we find ourselves working in the other way. It used to be you'd study molecules, it would give you ideas about behavior, and the rodent's behavior would give you ideas about humans. Now we find ourselves going almost in, in, the, in the reverse direction. We're involved in genetic studies on humans, which give us genetic targets, which then induce us to produce animal models, which we study, and based on what we find in the animal models, we cut slices to understand what we just found. So we find ourselves going in the other direction. You can only do that if you have the techniques. And it's just, I have to say, just hugely exciting. That's so interesting. <laughs> Is there something in the field that has been unanswered for a long time and that you hope will... Is there some sort of, I guess, like hurdle in the field that we have yet to, like, that's sort of holding back any of the research? I don't know what to say about holding back. I think the field is just going head <laughs> into, into new like into new avenues. Let me let me answer that question, and I'll step back and tell you something else that's interesting. Yeah. Here's the, here's the thing. There's there's one that's just staring us all in the face. Right? We put a couple. We used to put one electrode down into an animal and have it do behavior and look at one neuron and, and start talking about the behavior. Now we've tried to improve that by putting arrays of electrodes in and maybe studying hundreds of neurons. But you have to remember there are billions upon billions of neurons and trillions of synapses in the brain. We're, we're just not, we're, forget about the tip of the iceberg, you know, we're, we're just at the tip the of the tip of the iceberg. We're, really what you want is you want to be able to look at large areas of the brain as they fire and synchronize their firing and set up... Um, um, waves of activity that are that are in one way or the other correlate. So that's the big thing that's staring us in the face, right? Is that we're we're recording from we have such impoverished data sets. Even when we're we're streaming in uh, gigabytes and ultimately terabytes of data, we still have these incredibly impoverished data sets. So that's the big thing. How will we how will we begin to record? large number of neurons and particularly the ability to look at them in correlated ways. Um, and, 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 you know, you do have things like fMRI, which in a much different way is looking at large area of the brain firing, but it would be very interesting to be able to know at the level of spiking neurons, um, hopefully imaging, imaging protocols will get better and better, and they are just moving at an incredible rate. I mean, science is changing right in front of our eyes, right? You can, you can feel it. <laughs> Definitely. I, I mean, the, the interesting story I wanted to tell you is in reading not long ago, we certainly know about Hodgkin, Huxley, and Katz, the, you know, the founders of synaptic transmission and, and action potentials. There's this story about Dale. The Dale hypothesis is the idea that a neurotrans one neuron will release one neurotransmitter. But he, he also was instrumental in showing that acetylcholine was um, the mediator of synaptic transmission in the uh, periphery. And he got the Nobel Prize for that with Lowy. He wrote a letter after visiting Bernard Katz's lab when Katz was kind of at, in his heyday, in his um, you know, astonishing youth and peak of his activity. And in that letter, which I don't exactly remember when it was written, but possibly in the 50s would make sense, 
he writes about the astonishing rate of change and the incredible thing that they're, incredible things they're doing in Katz's lab where they're recording in ways that are unheard of and, and science is moving at such an incredible pace. And reading this letter, you thought, geez, this letter could be written right now if you just change the techniques. <laughs> this is exactly what we stay, say that science is changing so fast. It's just remarkable. But that's the same feeling um, Dale had in visiting Katz's lab in the 50s. So it does feel like it's ramping up, but I think it's always felt <laughs> feeling like that for people. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.